Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. I've been hosting Early Risers for over a year now, and I've had the honor of interviewing educators, psychologists, children's book authors, brain researchers, and many others. So today, for our final episode of Season 3, I want to reflect on the journey I've been on and revisit some highlights from those conversations. My kid disarmed me when he engaged in the first conversation about race, and I was literally silenced. It is a privilege to be able to basically say that race doesn't matter or that I'm colorblind, and that's effectively what I now see I was saying. What kids learn is what your body recoils from and leans into, not just your instruction. They're learning from, oh, she never wants to talk about race. That's what she's recoiling from. One of the reasons why I started Early Risers was to help adults model for our children how to have these conversations. I think we all need to get better at talking about race and racism, especially with young children, because we can't solve a problem that we can't even talk about. Each of us comes to these conversations from different places and with different levels of comfort and practice. And so it's also important to give ourselves a lot of grace. In all of my interviews, I'm looking to deepen my understanding of how children learn about race and racism and the different ways we as adults can open up conversations with children rather than shut them down. We teach our kids not to comment on the difference they see, not to ask questions, just don't talk about it. The problem that turns into in adulthood is a room full of adults who can't have a meaningful conversation about race or racism. That's Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's a psychologist and author of the best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? Dr. Tatum has been writing about race and racial identity development for over 40 years. She says that children start internalizing racist messages from when they're as young as three or four years old. It's part of what she calls the smog we are all breathing. Many people say, well, children are colorblind, children are not racist, and so why should we talk to young children about race? And what I try to say is that children are actually developing their cultural and racial identity uh, from the moment they're born, actually. And so can you talk a little bit about how we develop this racial identity? What is happening in our brains uh, developmentally when we're young? Sure. Let's just start with this idea that children are learning from the time they're born about the world around them. Physical difference is something that children notice and start to comment on 
as soon as they have language, you know, two-year-olds can notice that somebody's skin is darker or lighter than theirs and ask about it. They can notice that somebody's hair is curly or straight and want to touch it. Kids do start to learn, even as young as three and four, that there is a hierarchy of racial value, that some people are more valued, some physical appearance is more desirable than other physical appearance. Those values or attitudes are absorbed, not because they are innate to us, but because that's what they're learning. They're watching TV. Who gets to star on the television? Who gets to be the star in the book? You know, what toys are being brought into the house and what do those toys look like? The messages about value, human value, and the hierarchy Mm -hmm. of human value is part of what I call in my book, the smog we're all breathing. And Mm. that smog is being taken in by not just adults, not just middle schoolers, not just, you know, first graders, but by babies, toddlers, preschoolers. And if you live in a smoggy place, you will become a smog breather, right? Right. Um, So if we think about the ways that racism, the messages are embedded in our culture, even if we are silent on the subject, kids are going to absorb that information. Uh, in your book, you talk something about being color silent. What happens when we don't encourage children to have these conversations? We shush, shush them or they learn that talking about race is taboo. What, what happens to them then? Yes. Well, we know that sh- happens a lot, right? We do shush yes. children. Um, and, you know, a grocery store example that I use sometimes is, let's imagine there had been a white child in the grocery store who said, mommy, mommy, look at that brown boy, mm-hmm. you know, and um, happened. <laughs> yes, and you can imagine that that mother might have said, Shh, right, yes. she thinks that maybe the child has embarrassed the person or family he's pointing at. And so um, you can appreciate the impulse to hush. But the problem with that impulse is that it communicates there's something wrong with what you just said. There's something wrong with what you've just noticed. Don't comment. If you if you see it, don't say anything about it. Um, and that message gets reinforced over and over again in ways that lead people to really become incapacitated in their ability to talk about what they see. Yeah. And As I say, you know, when parents say my child is colorblind, you know, my daughter has a black friend and she never mentioned that she was black. She just said, oh, the girl in the red coat on the playground. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's only one black kid on the playground and she's wearing a red coat and your daughter didn't say she was black, it's probably not that she didn't notice. It's probably that she's learned she's not supposed to say so. Um, What we think is colorblindness is actually color silence. Pre-K classrooms are one of the places where children start to learn about race and that hierarchy of human value that Dr. Tatum just described. Across the United States, about a quarter of all children under the age of five are attending some kind of formalized childcare. That's according to the Center for American Progress. 
Preschools are often one of the first places where children of color experience a racialized incident, and they can become unsafe spaces for them. Anecdotally, I've heard from preschool educators that they often feel unprepared when racialized incidents happen in the classroom. Dr. Rosemarie Allen is an associate professor in the School of Education at Metropolitan State University of Denver. As a Black girl growing up in Los Angeles in the 1960s, Dr. Allen experienced racial bias, including being suspended and labeled as disruptive, which we know happens at statistically higher rates for Black boys and girls compared to their peers. I asked Dr. Allen to explain how children are not born racist, but instead start to learn about racism in relationship with adults. What we have to understand is that Black families talk about race very early in a child's life. And it's part of our conversations almost daily um, because it's part of our survival and making sure our children do well and also to counter racism that they will experience living in America. For white families, their skin serves as a barrier of protection, so they don't have to talk about it so often. But that doesn't mean that children are not aware of race very early. And what we know is that babies, infants are aware of race starting at about three months when they begin to prefer the same race caregiver. Wow. And by the time they're two and a half, they begin to categorize people based on race. And when you think about it, Diane, it's so typical. They're categorizing everything based on how it looks. They are. That's, That's how, how they learn. learn. Shapes yeah. and colors and people and hair and height. So what happens then as they're mm-hmm. categorizing based on skin color, they're picking up adult cues about race. Children know very Mm -hmm. early in their early childhood classrooms who's preferred, who's not, who gets in trouble, who doesn't, who the teacher likes, what color skin Mm -hmm. tone. They notice when you go to the supermarket who you ask for help. So uh, many, many times there Mm -hmm. can be people of color working at a supermarket. And if a white family is looking for the white person to ask for help, is sending this message to mm. children that the other helpers don't matter. And it happens also in elementary classrooms right. where 80% of the teacher workforce is white. And the only time children see people of color is serving them. You're my bus driver, you're my cafeteria Mm. worker, you're my janitor. So you serve me. And the only people who have authority Mm -hmm. or who may be equal to me or have authority over me are white people. So do you see how we condition children Mm -hmm. in terms of race and in terms of who's valued and who's not? And we already know that Black boys, starting at eight months old, are the most suspended children in America. So white children see black children as disposable. You get in trouble and you're gone. So they know very early who's valued and who's not. So if children start becoming conditioned around race from a very young age, how does that learning happen in a child's developing brain? 
In early childhood education, we talk a lot about how the first 1,000 days of a child's life are so crucial because so much brain growth happens during this precious window. Dr. Damien Fair is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Minnesota, where he co-directs the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. He explains how our brains are designed to recognize patterns and how that affects the way children start learning about race. I think about like some of the other conversations we've had on Early Rises, and we talk about how very young children, two, three, they are learning and they're and they learn by categorizing things. And so they are categorizing and trying to put things in, in place as they're developing. And so sometimes they will um, mention, you know, somebody's skin color is a different color. Hair texture is different. Um, we as adults are placing some kind of judgment on that. But the child is just noticing a difference and trying to categorize it. So what can you say about how the brain does that categorization and what happens when a child, especially a young child, is receiving negative images, negative racial images, negative racial language? How does that also affect the way the brain develops? Well, you're absolutely right. You should come to my lectures and explain all this stuff because you do, you do a much better job than I do. It's like, wow, she's got it. it's amazing. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. The brain is designed to figure out and characterize patterns. That's what it does. Now, when it comes to race, you're absolutely right. Race is, is a learned construct. And it's one of these things, it's a pattern that certainly kids can recognize but it's not really attached to any, in the beginning, into any negative connotations or things like that. Right. But that changes extremely early. So there's a, a some very classic set of experience in psychology. I think it's called the Implicit Association Test, called the IAT. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It started out at Harvard, I think, in the early 2000s. And what they were clearly able to show in in adults is that the speed at which we can cogitate or recognize objects is associated with how congruent other information around it is. So like if I'm asked to differentiate between like a chair and a boat, if the chair is associated with a table, then I'll be able to associate that chair faster. Now in the implicit association test, you can essentially pair faces of specific races with words that are either good or bad. And what you can clearly show in adults is that black faces are associated with bad words. Now, by the time I believe you're six, five or six, that effect is there. So they're embedded in our psyche and they develop um, based on the extent literature that I know extremely, extremely early. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. Today, I'm revisiting highlights from some of my past interviews. It's a way of looking back at the journey I've been on since I started this podcast over a year ago and what I've learned from my guests along the way. 
In so many of my interviews, I've had the pleasure of hearing stories about my guests' parenting journeys and how they've responded when their own children have asked them questions about race. One story that sticks with me comes from Christina Gonzalez. She's a director of student support services for Richfield Public Schools. It's a suburban school district just outside of Minneapolis. Christina and I have been friends for many years and also know each other through our work in early childhood here in Minnesota, where I live. Christina is the daughter of immigrants from Lebanon, and her husband is from Mexico. They have two children, a boy and a girl. They've been very intentional about parenting their children to be proud of their multi-ethnic, multiracial, and bilingual identities. Still, when it comes to talking about race with her kids, like so many of us, Christina has faced some difficult and messy moments. My children are half Mexican, half Arab, so they're Spanish-speaking Arabs. Um, my oldest son reads as Mexican. My daughter has is similar to her mama, so a little more fair. We, we speak only Spanish in the home. Well, let me start with this mama and my husband often talked about race. Often. What do you notice in the restaurant? Be proud for being a Mexican. I mean, we just, we had the books, the conversations. Um, we gave of ourselves. We did service. So um, my kid disarmed me when he engaged in the first conversation about race and I was literally silenced. So probably third grade, picked him up from school. I'm sure we had to rush somewhere. But all I remember is him saying, I don't want to play with the white kids anymore, mom, at school. Mm. And I, I literally, I just remember saying, wait, what? Oh, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. What was going through your mind at that moment? I think it was like, we have to go to karate. I cannot believe in retrospect that I didn't stop everything and drop my bags, and drop to my knees and say, say more, baby. But even me, you know how you described me, my work, like even me, I didn't know what to do. It was hard to process in that moment. So hard because, because he's so little. I think there was this part of me that was like, already, I'm going to just avoid it. No, it's not this early. He's already feeling some sort of way as a brown boy. I mean, he was little, little. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, he was seven. He was seven, second grade. So what happened at the school to lead him to make that statement? These were his words. Mama, I don't want to play with the white kids as much anymore because I don't feel as comfortable. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, with, and he named his friends, with these brown and black kids, I can be who I am. And when he said, I can be who I truly am, what, what was he really saying? What was he really talking about? He's saying he could breathe deeply in his skin as a Mexican Arab boy, and he can be loud or not. He can, at that point, break dance or not, sing or not, just without inhibition. And that story she just shared, Christina was able to really listen and ask questions from a place of concern and curiosity. Even when it's uncomfortable, what matters most is that we take a moment to pause and think about what's really happening and not to avoid the conversation. Hey. 
Earlier in the episode, we heard from early childhood education professor and scholar, Dr. Rosemarie Allen. She has a good example of how she took the opportunity to pause and reflect with her husband and young son. Dr. Allen's children are adults now, but she shared a story about a time when her son was little and she and her husband, who is also African-American, went sledding in the predominantly white Colorado community where they were raising their children. My husband grew up in the segregated South. He actually grew up with white and colored signs. So that's his background. But here here we are again in Colorado. He takes my son sledding. And I, I'm from California, so I'd rather not go. But my son, <laughs> please, mommy, <laughs> go sledding. So I go and I... I noticed this odd behavior in my husband. My son would go down the hill, Mm -hmm. but as he's coming back, my husband would say, Clarence, watch out. Clarence, be careful. Clarence, move out of the way. And I noticed that the first time coming up and I thought, I wonder why he's doing that. So the second time it happened and I'm thinking Mm -hmm. something about it was very uncomfortable for me. So the third time he went down, I said, when he comes up, please don't say his name. Let let him come up on his own. Mm -hmm. So when we got home, we had the discussion. I said, you know, I noticed you were doing that. And I'm just wondering why, you know, where where did that come from? He said, well, I didn't want him to get hurt. You know, people were sledding down the hill and I didn't want him to get Mm -hmm. hurt. And I said, oh, I said, let me tell you my interpretation that he was being made to feel like he was a guest in his own park, Hmm. that he was a guest. And I said, did you notice there wasn't a single white person who told their child to watch out for him? Mm -hmm. But somehow he had to be very careful of the white children coming down the hill. And and it was just very curious to me. So my husband's a reflector. And the next morning he woke up, he said, I need to talk to you. He said, when I was growing up, if a white person was walking down the sidewalk, we had to get off. We had to step off the curb to let them pass by. He said, my entire youth, I had to get out of the way of white people. But what I didn't know until you pointed it out to me, that I was teaching my son the same thing, Mm. the exact same thing. And that was just so powerful. He didn't know. So we have to ask ourselves when we talk about our ways of being and our unhealed trauma. So Mm -hmm. he was still dealing with this trauma response of getting out of the way of white people. But we also, Diane, have to ask, are white people still expecting us to get out of the way for them? Mm. Oh, that's good. You know, that's because it's two ways. Stop putting the microscope on people of color. We have all been traumatized. And is this why little Black children are getting in so much trouble? Because that trauma response is that you get out of my way, you do what I say, you defer to me because of that unhealed generational trauma for whites as well as for Blacks. As parents, we want to disrupt that unhealed generational trauma around race. We also want children to feel safe. But the events of the last few years, from the pandemic to the murder of George Floyd and ongoing racial violence, have made it difficult to provide children, especially children of color, with that sense of safety. 
University of Minnesota cognitive neuroscientist Damian Fair grew up in a mixed-race family in southeastern Minnesota. I asked Dr. Fair about the conversations he's been having with his children about race. We've had various conversations about race with our kids. I mean, and some of them are pretty hard. I mean, so we moved here, right, from Portland in mm. July of uh, 2020. So mm. there was a lot of stuff going on. Interesting time to move <laughs> yeah, here. right? And so <laughs> yes. the stressful time is during the pandemic. And, of course, there's, you know, the news with Floyd and, you know, well, all the news, right, was um, scary, you know. Mm-hmm. We went to the George Floyd Memorial. We did that like the first week we got here. You know, my daughter, who was eight at the time, she mused about painting our faces white before we got there so the police wouldn't hurt us. Oh, my. And, (sighs) you know, those conversations, they were very tough. But again, I think for the most part, we've tried to err on... Um, trying to make sure that they understand that they're valued so that they maintain a level of, of confidence as they kind of traverse through their own journey. For children of color, exposure to negative racial messages can harm a child's self-esteem and sense of worthiness, even into adulthood. I often say that children of color in particular need to have really strong ego strength so that they can recognize racialized incidents when they happen without internalizing them in a negative way. One of the challenges parents can face is how to respond when racialized incidents happen in the classroom. Peggy Flanagan is Minnesota's 50th Lieutenant Governor. She is a registered member of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and she's raising her daughter to be proud and knowledgeable about her Native heritage and to stand up for herself when she encounters microaggressions at school. We had one incident uh, already, of course, last year where she said, that's not true. Um, and which is good, um, you know, and, and handled the situation and we talked to the teacher and it was all good. But even like this year, she said, um, they were talking about Native Americans and where they live. And, and someone was like, they live in tents. And, uh, apparently this is like the story that's relayed to me by her teacher. Siobhan sort of rolled her eyes, <laughs> looked at the teacher and her teacher said, do you want to, would you like to talk about this? And she's like, yes. And she said, some Native people lived in teepees. She said, you know, as Ojibwe people, we lived in wigwams. And she's like, but today I live in a house. And it was just like, I don't know that I would have, as an eight-year-old, like felt that confidence. like, And to also feel like I had a co-conspirator and an ally and my teacher. um, Like, that's for real. And it is because her teacher has also done that work. Yes. Right. That that there's that environment, but it's not always going to be that way. And so needing to make sure that she knows who she is so that in those spaces where she doesn't have a co-conspirator mm-hmm. or allyship, that she still can hold her own and as much as possible walk out of that situation unscathed. Mm-hmm. 
When people ask me, when should we start? I pretty much my standard answer is today. Whatever today is, however old they are. Beth Hall is an advocate for having conversations about race with young children from an early age. She's the executive director of an organization called PACT in Oakland, California, that supports children of color in adoption. Beth has personal experience with transracial adoption. She's the white parent of two adult children. She and her husband adopted a son who's African-American and a daughter with roots in Guatemala. She explained how she coaches parents who may be reluctant to talk with their kids about race. A lot of times we we hear that parents are saying that I don't want to raise the issue of race because I'm afraid that that is either racist or that they'll get scared. Yep. You talk about that a little bit about how we prepare our children for scary things. And what do you say about that? Well, often I use one of two examples. One is crossing the street. I live in an urban area. I live in Oakland, Mm -hmm. California. My children grew up in an urban area. Believe me, when we got to corners and they wanted to dash out in the street, they heard in a sharp and clear way that that was not going to happen. Why was that? Because we knew they could die in the street. Right. And uh, we didn't care if they were scared. We wanted them to be scared. So (laughs) they're healthy scared. (laughs) What I say a lot to particularly people that are sort of saying, well, I don't want to scare them. I'm like, well, I do because my son is now a black man. He needs to understand what's safe and what's not. And part of that revolves around race, his race. Is that fair? Of course not. Do I wish that for him? Of course not. Were those conversations hard? Of course, but they're true. And I am not going to risk his life over scaring him. And I use air quotations there. If you believe that we are not living in a racially safe, supportive and equitable time, which I certainly do, then how can you not (laughs) prepare your children to manage that? If we don't tell them, how are they going to know? And the dangers are too great to do that, in my opinion. I probably went, if you talk to my kids, I mean, my kids used to, when they were older, they would sometimes say to me, mom, talk to the hand. What that meant in our family (laughs) was, we get it. You talk about this 24-7. They would both roll their eyes to you and say, she never shut up about But they also, when something happens, when George Floyd gets murdered, when my son gets followed in the store or my daughter Mm -hmm. gets asked to open her purse or whatever it might be, which happens, of course, they call me. Yeah. That's what I was hoping for, that I yes. could be seen as an ally. Yes. Could yes. Try to help. I didn't always know how, but I always tried to. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. Today, I'm revisiting some of my past interviews and sharing highlights of those conversations. It's a way of taking stock of the journey I've been on. I've learned so many things along the way about how to raise children with an understanding of cultural differences, race, and implicit bias. In all of my conversations, I always like to ask my guests for specific tips, tools, and advice to pass along to my listeners. One of my favorite tips comes from Dr. Rosemary Allen. She's an early childhood professor and scholar, and we heard from her earlier in the episode. Dr. Allen recommends that all parents cultivate what she calls a treasure chest of responses. I asked her to explain what she means by that. 
you talk about how parents need to have a treasure chest of responses. And I think that when you say that, you're talking about probably both when your child has experienced some kind of a microaggression. Um, But this is true for both white parents and Black parents or parents of color. Now, what you say might be different, but having that treasure chest, I would imagine, is, is the same for all parents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And the reason that you need a treasure chest of responses is because when this happens, it's so shocking. It's so shocking. We become very neutralized and we don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know what you'll say in these situations before they happen, the moment passes so quickly. Before you know it is gone and you and you, have you ever been in a situation where you wished you had a rewind button? Yes. <laughs> you think about your answer and you go, yes. I wish I could go back and say it. So prepare to say it beforehand. And like you said, it's for all parents, for um, white parents when their child says, I don't want to play with them because they're brown. Mm-hmm. What do you say? What do so you right say? now, prepare your responses and say, Underneath that brown skin, he's just like you and me. Mm-hmm. And we get to know people based on who they are. And just having those ready comments, those ready responses. And the other reason that Black parents really need them is because we have to make sure when we respond, we respond in a way that the child doesn't internalize it. Children's books can be powerful tools for opening up these conversations. It's especially meaningful when young readers can see themselves reflected in the story. However, in 2021, children's books about people of color represented only about 30% of all new children's books in the United States. That's according to data from the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Bao Fee is the author of the award-winning children's book, a different pond. It was inspired by his experience growing up in Minnesota as the child of parents that fled Vietnam as refugees when it was no longer safe for their family after the Vietnam War. Growing up in Minneapolis, Bao Phi experienced racism and a feeling of being invisible as an Asian American. Once he became a parent, he wanted things to be different for his child, and so he started writing stories for children that weren't available to him when he was younger. What I like about A Different Pond is that it's kind of telling your story in a very general way, but it's not demonstrative about race. It tells your family's story from a boy's perspective in a way that children that are Vietnamese or or other um, immigrants and refugees can relate to. So what impact do you think your book has on Vietnamese children and family? A lot of teachers tell me that you know, not just Vietnamese kids, but like Southeast Asian kids and Asian kids would be reticent speaking in class, you know, about their experience and their families. And then the teacher would read my book. And then suddenly all these Southeast Asian kids and Asian kids would be like, oh, 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 I used to go fishing or my my family was a little bit different, but, I, you know, there were similarities. And yeah, yeah. to hear that, you know, like it was my first book. I mean, I, you ha- I had no idea. 
I, I really wrote it because I wanted my child, you know, who we had been reading to every night. Like, you know, obviously we want our kid to learn about all different peoples. So right. we, their mother and I, we would, you know, very intentionally pick books that were written by and featured characters who are Black, Native American, Pacific Islander, Latinx, mixed race, queer, Asian American, you know, like at a young age, expose them to as many different stories and people as possible, right? Right. And I wanted my child in particular to have something that tried to connect them to the struggle of their grandparents on Mm. my side. Yes. Because I feel like for the, all the invisibility I feel, my parents' generation, that, that generation of refugees, you know, where English is their second language, right. I feel like their struggle and their history is particularly invisible. Children's books... Art, music, movies, toys, all of these are great tools for starting these conversations. As Bao Fee just talked about, it's important that parents expose children to a wide variety of stories and images about diverse communities, including works created by and about people of color. I learned about one tool that I absolutely love from my conversation with Brooke LaFleur. She's an early childhood educator and entrepreneur, and she's a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. Brooke creates toys and other tools to connect all children to contemporary Native culture. She told me about a powerful cultural resource she first learned about as a child. We have a tool called the Medicine Wheel, and it's symbolic of many, many things, but it's also one way that we, I, I have been taught about race anyways. And there's this saying in Lakota called and I'm Ojibwe, so that's not my language. It means we are all related, right? And the way we look at this medicine wheel, there's four colors. There's red, yellow, white, and black. And it's in a circle with a cross between it. And there's the four different colors. They use that tool as a way to talk about the different people of the world, right? There's Asian relatives who are yellow. Um, there's us, we're the red people technically, There's our European relatives who are white and our African relatives who are black. And I guess you would say Mexico fits within the red because we're all the same continent. Mm -hmm. So it's really a way that we talked about the people of the world, more so about than race. People come in different colors, right? But that we are all related, that we all come from the same um, Mother Earth and that there's a lot more similarities than there is differences. Oh, I love it. So that's how I was prescribed race kind of growing up. And it wasn't directly, you know, race, but more about the world and the fact that there's other global citizens. And what I like about that, Brooke, what I like about how you're describing that is everybody's equal. I think what you were given is almost like a gift to be able to learn from a very young age that everyone is equal in that way, and then actually have something visual to show you what that looks like. Absolutely. Louise Derman Sparks is one of my personal heroes. She has more than 50 years experience working with children and caregivers on anti-bias education and has authored several books, including What If All the Kids Are White? It focuses on how to talk with white children about race and racism. She told me about the creative ways parents and educators can use dolls to start conversations about race and racial identity with young children. 
The other thing that people are using, which is a one-time investment, are dolls, what we call persona dolls. And that's just a fancy word for these dolls are the teacher's dolls, and the teacher gives them a personage. So they have a name and a family. If I can just take a second, I'm going to go grab one. Oh, sure. (laughs) So here's one of my persona dolls. Very cute. Shall we call you Sandra? Huh? And and Sandra lives with her her grandmother and her mother and her father. And her grandmother takes care of her because her mother is working as a teacher and her father is working in a factory. And these are the things they like to do as a family. So on Sundays they go to church in the morning and then they they come home and Sandra's aunts and uncles and cousins come over and they have dinner together. And then you can have also that she celebrates like Kwanzaa at Christmas time, which if you want to introduce something new. And then once you know her a little bit, say that the other day in school, a child said to her that her skin was dirty because of brown. And that really hurt her feelings. You know, she knew that her skin wasn't dirty. And the teacher can say to the kids, what do you think? the teacher should do? What can we do to help her with her feelings? The dolls become a way to deal with issues that are about identity and diversity and prejudice or stereotypes. And you don't have to keep buying books. (laughs) You have Ah. the dolls and the dolls last because they're yours. So that's another way to supplement books. So you could have several dolls of different races. Right. And each one has their own name and 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 their own story behind it. And then you can talk through whenever you want to things that might be happening with, you know, these different personalities. They are a very powerful way of working with kids because they allow the teacher to develop stories that work with what's going on in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the kids also come to really identify with them. Mm. This is fascinating, um, all this about the, the dolls. I can already in my, my mind, I'm thinking of so many different scenarios where using the dolls could be very helpful in a classroom and also just as a parent. I you know presume you could use it as well. Yeah, I am of a firm belief that the talking with children about hard issues is what helps them learn how to cope with them and to become resilient. Pretending that they're not happening and sort of covering it up just leaves kids to develop all their own ideas about what might be happening. And and some of those ideas can be pretty upsetting to the kids. Yes. I don't think it hurts them to open up the issues. It's just the it's the silence that is really painful. That silence that Louise Derman Sparks just described can cause our children real harm. One of the places where that harm can fester is in the body. Resma Minicum is a therapist and coach. He's the author of the best-selling book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. He told me about some very simple questions adults can ask children to help them be more in tune with their bodies and how we can help children use that body awareness as a resource for working through difficult experiences and emotions.
what kids learn is what your body recoils from and leans into, not just your instruction. Yes. This is why why bodies have to do this work because kids are not learning from just what your instruction is up on the board. They're learning from, oh, she never wants to talk about race. That's what she's recoiling from. So one of the things that, that adult caregivers can do is be mindful of that piece that what kids are doing is that they're picking up on what you're recoiling from and what you're leaning into. When you omit something, right? They pick up on your omission. Yes, yes, yes. They may not be able to articulate what you're, what it is, but they pick up on the omission. But the other thing that has to happen is that when stuff is happening, rather than asking kids and age appropriately, you know, how are you doing with this? Right? Because that's what we all do, where we go, how are you doing with this? And kids are screaming inside like, how are you dealing with this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, and, and that's what kids will say a lot of times, right? When you're trying to t- debrief, they I don't know. I don't know. It's because what you're doing is you're overwhelming them, right? Okay. So one of the things that you can do is begin to just say to them things like this. How are you sleeping, baby? Mm. Are you eating the same way? Are people holding you? Are you playing a lot, right? Or especially younger kids, rather than going in and asking them about George Floyd, you begin to work with in their bodies. How do you know when you experience something as resourced? How do you know when you experience something as not resourced or potentially dangerous? Or actually ask kids that and weigh in is to ask them how you're sleeping. And they say, well, I, you know, I'm not really sleeping very well. I keep waking up. Oh, what do you notice when you're waking up? Like, do you feel good, like ready for the day? Or do you feel bad, like, you know, you just want to go back to sleep? You see what I mean? And and, and you're helping them develop an embodied discernment in the body that says, oh, bing, oh. just heard about a range of tips, concrete things like books and dolls and other toys, as well as actual language we can use and how to take care of our bodies. There are so many tips and tools to try out. This is just a small sampling. I want to thank the many wonderful guests who've joined me on the Early Risers podcast, including the voices you've heard in this episode. I have learned so much along this journey and appreciate the wisdom and personal stories people have shared with me. Before we go, there's something I want to say to anyone listening who's a parent or caregiver. These conversations about race and racism are messy. What's most important is that you let children know it's okay to have the conversation. It's also okay to say, I don't know, and to find out answers together. If you have a conversation that doesn't go so well and you feel like you messed up, don't let that be the end of the story. This is not a one and done kind of conversation. You can always go back and do repair. You can listen to all of our past episodes and subscribe to the Early Risers podcast on our website. That's at npr.org backslash early risers. 
Look for us on social media. We're at Podcast Early on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Katie DeSell is our social media manager. Sound mixing by Derek Ramirez and Rachel Breeze. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. Special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks for listening.